Welcome to the Mustang Owners Podcast. And now your host, Steve Hall. Welcome to another episode of Mustang Owners Podcast. I'm Steve Hall. I'm the Executive Director of the Mustang Owners Museum. And tonight's special guest we have is Art Hyde. Uh, Art has been around with the Mustang World and known in the Mustang world for many, many years, but primarily involved as the chief engineer with the SN95, which is the fourth generation Mustang. So, Art, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Steve. Nice, nice to speak to you. Well, no, I appreciate you spending some time with us. I've had an opportunity to listen to some of your your speaking engagements and seminars in the past. I remember one time you told me you were John Clore for Mustang before there was a John Clore. So it gives people an idea. <laughs> just... <laughs> that, actually, John Clore said it that way. <laughs> oh, is that what it came from? Okay. Well, let, let's give him a, let's give him the the, the the attaboy for that. But uh, I mean, you were even at one time uh, a member of the Mustang Club of America director uh yep. so you've you've been pretty much done a deep dive with uh, with a lot of things mustang and connected to enthusiasts but i'd like to talk a little bit of, and i guess i'm gonna ask some questions that might be a little simplistic but we'll start from there and with you being the chief engineer for the sn95 what mm-hmm. does a chief engineer do well the chief engineer is the the person that leads the engineering team But more importantly, the chief engineer is the person that's responsible to make sure that the vehicle that's being developed reflects what the users want and the business realities and the business constraints that the business requires as well. So think of it as sort of the the captain captain of a ship. So they determine what route to take to get get to the uh, port that they're heading to, as simplistically put. So... Um, actually, I was the chief also for the S197 uh, platform also for the development of that right up to program approval. You know, for that, these teams can be up to 400 people. Well, that's the part that I've learned over the last couple of months in talking to some folks is that the amount of people that are involved. And when we talked, when I mentioned that about uh, talking with Joel, he had talked about how they had, when they did the 2015 Mustang, they had looked at hundreds of renderings from around all the various design centers as they were yeah, from yeah. all over the place, which is so you start to realize just, you know, the, the enormity of the effort that it takes. And then of course, breaking it down. And I, I can, I cannot imagine how many people, how many engineers are actually involved. And then of course you have on the design side, you have an exterior team and an interior team. And I would assume mm-hmm. that you'd have to work closely with them because, you know, it's like a bit of a puzzle, so to speak, I guess everything has to fit. Everything has to kind of come together, correct? Absolutely. The chief has got to make sure nothing, no balls get dropped on the floor. And also, because the chief actually, and, and at least the way it was explained to me when I took over the job and, and as I was observing our predecessors doing the job, is your, your job is to make sure everybody's aligned. So while the design center doesn't quote report to you on a hard line, in fact, there's very few direct reports. Mostly your job is to influence people to get them to work together. People procrastinate, people uh, settle into uh, uh, call it things that are easy to do um, and, and comfortable for them rather than necessarily what's the right thing to do. Sometimes it's all the harder path is what's required to really meet what the, the customers and the business needs. So, yeah, so the so design center people. I worked very closely with uh, Doug Gafka was the design manager 
most of the time while I was um, the, the chief of both the SN95 and the S197. Uh, also, uh, or he was design director, excuse me, he was the, the, the design director. So as we go through that, but also I had the manufacturing people. So, you know, I'm also responsible to make sure manufacturing is engaged and productively contributing to the design. Because when you design a part, you also have to design the manufacturing process to make that part. The engineering process or the assembly process, I should say, for assembling it into a vehicle. So it's a full team. I actually call it the enterprise. And that includes suppliers. So the chief has to approve all the suppliers. And is he's the, the person or she's the person that makes sure that all the teams are progressing in a parallel manner so that the vehicle is uh, proceeding uh, down um, the design pipeline in a consistent way so that you don't have powertrain uh, working in a way that's inconsistent with what the body team needs or what the dynamic teams need or what the safety teams need. So you're the, the, the buck stops here for integration issues when you're the chief. Well, I say, I guess the buck, the buck stops with you. I may ask someone asked if this is correct, but I had read where this is really one of the first times that a car was done, a new generation Mustang. And you had created where you, I guess uh, you had a facility off-site, uh, and was it an old Montgomery Wards? Yeah, yeah. For the, for the SN95, the 94 car, mm -hmm. uh, I was the body manager for that program uh, towards the tail end of that program. Yeah, we were located in a um, in old Montgomery Wards uh, down in Allen Park, just south of Dearborn. Uh, there was a, The building was owned by Roush, and uh, so uh, that's where Team Mustang originally the term was, was taken. Uh, but then as soon as the 94 car was launched, uh, the team moved back into the engineering center at uh, the product development center, we call it, in Dearborn. Gotcha. Well, from that, then I uh, wanted to kind of lead as, as the car progressed over the years. I know you've, you, I've heard that you tell the story about how uh, you looked at what, well, where, where Mustang was at the time in, in the early, you know, in 2000, 2001. And basically from there, kind of, well, you took it to some new levels, creating the bullet, the Mach 1. And I hope you just chat a little bit about that because obviously that was very important. But I'm also, I've always been curious, you know, Ford at up till then had never done a bullet, a truly car branded bullet. What made you think that that could be something that would be would resonate <laughs> and, and and hit? And it did. But I'm just kind of curious because that was that was well that was very smart. <laughs> it seemed to be a great idea, and it really yeah. has connected to uh, the hobby. Yeah, I think a number of uh, there's a number of people. I think me and Jay Mays both I think separately came up with the same idea at pretty much the same time. The uh, but it's, it's it's interesting because Jay and I have talked about it since then uh, how we you know it just sort of happened. We were doing what we call immersion excursions, you know, because what it bothered me uh, when I took over Mustang Chief, because I now I had a chance to run the business and manage it like a business. And what had always bothered me was if you look at the Mustang as a business from 1967 to 1999, um, it had only made money, I believe, three years during that period. My memory is correct. Might have been four, but I think it's three. And so as a result, um, the business was not a very sustainable business. And so as anything was required to, 
to update on the car, like for a new safety standard, a new emission standard, the finance guys would always say, what the heck are we doing spending money on a vehicle that loses money? That doesn't make it. I'm not going to throw good money after bad. So we should just cancel the vehicle and move on. And then there's, of course, there was another camp that says, oh, no, we don't have to cancel it. We're just make it a version of a, a focus or something like that. You know, like the the what became the probe, the Mustang, the Mustang three, as it was going to be called uh, ST 16 internally, we called it. So, you know, that always bothered me here. You have a globally recognized brand. What's wrong with this picture? How could it be a brand like this doesn't make money? There's something wrong with the picture. So we did a deep dive and we went and talked to a bunch of of, uh, customers all over the country. I even went around the world uh, because at that point I was sort of had had some connections in Japan and Asia. So I was going back and forth there and also to Europe. And so, you know, I was asking people all around the world about the Mustang business and the like. And what we what I concluded very early on was, aha, I see the problem. Ford thinks that they're selling a car. But in actuality, what we're selling is a lifestyle. And if you if you think of the vehicle as a lifestyle, then there's a whole a whole nother level of sort of a luxury associated with it that may may actually uh, generate more revenue, but you have to make it special. And so we did um, the the bullet for uh, really uh, two reasons. The first reason is we, as we were going around the world and talking to people, and even very young people. I mean, we we're going into high schools at some point, looking at people in the you know the next generation of buyers that would maybe aspire towards a Mustang. The name Steve McQueen kept coming up, and these were people that weren't alive when Steve was alive. And so, you know, it, it became very clear. We, you know, we'd ask people questions like, when you get in this vehicle, how does it make you feel? And they would say, use words like, I feel like it's um, instant vacation, or I feel like it empowers me because I feel like I'm Steve McQueen. You know, I'm a little bit sophisticated, but don't mess with me kind of thing. And which is sort of the Frank Bullitt character, really. In a nutshell, so we decided that it would be a really good idea uh, if we could could uh, maybe dredge up this dead brand because the movie wasn't really shown anymore. It was I even had trouble finding a, a, a videotape of it through an intermediary. We contacted the McQueen family and we got a discussion going with, with them on what would it take to buy the rights. And at first, they were completely unreasonable. But the good thing was that. Chad McQueen and Chad McQueen's sister, whose name escapes me right off the top of my head, they got it. And they were instantly on board and they were going to try to help us make it happen. Now, the 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 Steve McQueen's last wife, who was still around and was married to the lawyer that was controlling Steve McQueen's estate, uh, they just wanted a bunch of money and stuff. And they were trying to profit on, in my opinion, in an extraordinary way. So we got the lawyers involved and we were able to get to something reasonable. And uh, we had we had had this uh, show car that we then uh, decided to show in, in Los Angeles. It was developed by a guy named Sean Tant, who really did a fantastic job. And he did it really quickly at, at uh, the Roush um, facility in Livonia, Michigan. 
and with, and that's where Jay came in. Jay really was super helpful in making all that happen. But we we sent the car there, and the response was just unbelievable, way better than we expected. And so then, you know, we had already started talking to the McQueen family because we couldn't even show it. We didn't think at the uh, L.A. show without having some level of agreement. So I wouldn't say we had an agreement, but we, they at least knew. We, we, we didn't surprise them with it. Let me put it that way. And so we developed the vehicle, and it, it demonstrated that uh, we priced it at the, the, the option price. It was an option on a GT. It was not a unique series. And, but we priced the option at the original purchase price, the 1964 uh, base car purchase price for the option to my team and, and uh, uh, team Mustang, who were all doing blogs and we were doing a lot with social media. Now, this is back in 1999 and 2000, when, you know, not, not in the last 20 years. Now, nowadays, this is normal. But back then, nobody had ever heard of this, at least not to my knowledge. So we, we went and started leaking things through these various blogs and and we got a lot of people excited and um, we sold out all the cars before the first one was built and that generated more profit i believe if my memory is correct more profit than the rest of the car line did for that calendar year and so we went back to marketing and said see we told you that this lifestyle thing there's something there and we need to really look at how do we how we market the entire car line Marketing still wasn't buying it. So um, we then did the Mach 1 because uh, we found the, the George Huseman of Classic Design Concepts had the original tool from 1969 and 70. And uh, so we made a couple of parts and we figured out how to fit it on a modular engine, uh, the old uh, the 99 Cobra engine, which we were about to replace with the uh, ter- Terminator. It was all part of the plan. Um, so we were purposely moving the Cobra way up market and we were going to reuse the hardware from the, the Cobra and to make a new sort of a, a middle, a series in the middle. And that was the became the Mach 1. The Mach 1 was extraordinarily profitable for the company. And frankly, is what that's how we funded the uh, S197 program. And also we that's how we convinced marketing in the end, because there was two years where it was selling super well. Um, that that this was not just a flash in the pan. And based on that, we turned the business around, the Mustang business around. That's, you know, today it's the uh, only car that Ford makes in North America. So uh, that's something to be uh, really uh, happy about. So it worked. And, uh, and you know, I really think that the uh, the users and the customers that we, we talked to um, for sharing with us their attitudes and and really some of their inner thoughts when they drove the vehicles. And because we listened, uh, we were able to uh, save the business. That's actually, uh, you have to say on any level, that's got to be a success story, uh, of of course, but it's a success story where business listens to the public and that reflects reflects back into what the car has done or going to be. And it worked. And so that's, um, you know, when you hear this story, that's why I want to make sure we had that for folks to listen to. Because one thing that we do here, as we've talked to some of the other designers, it is more and more about how they do go out and they do want to talk to owners and enthusiasts and clubs. And they take that in to try to, you know, how do we make that next generation resonate to the to the existing core Mustang world? 
as such. And so uh, yeah. it's it's a great story because I think that's important. I hope you don't mind. I, I do want to ask you, if you don't mind, just tell them a little bit about Kermit. <laughs> Kermit? <laughs> my, my car? Yes. <laughs> I remember no, when we're not we, talking about a frog. No, no, frog. no, that's why I said Jim that. Jim Henson is not in the room. You know, I, that's why I said that that way, just for a little humor. Well, but uh, I, but John I, Clark calls it the, uh, was it the Frankenhide? Yes, I've heard that. Uh, um, exactly. But yeah. uh, I know when we were talking about the museum and cars, you told me what you had. And I said, oh, my God, I'd love to have that on display because it has so many parts of the of what you did are there. So do you mind yeah. just sharing a little bit about that? That's kind of a funny story. So I my my wife and I was when I was getting a, a, a Mustang when I was the chief, you know, I, I, I I'm a big believer and you want to drive the car that you do. And I had some Mustangs, to be honest with you, but. I wasn't using any of my collector Mustangs to drive to and from work. And so I, I ordered a what then new 1999 Cobra. The, the feature color in 99 was this electric current green, hence the name Kermit. Now, the assembly plant painted it black twice because they didn't want to paint green. And I think they may have also been pulling my leg, to be honest with you. <laughs> but, but anyway, I made them repaint it. So finally, I got a green, got it, and got it in green like it was supposed to be. Just it was a stock '99 Cobra, but the first thing that happened was, you know, we had the power uh, issue where um, the 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 turned out the uh, engine plant was not hot testing the engines and was, you know, there was actually some uh, flashings in the intake manifolds, particularly that was uh, causing the airflow to not be what it was supposed to be. And so we had engines that were not performing to, to spec. And so uh, we had to develop a, um, a repair package with uh, extrude hone of the intake manifolds. That was the best way to do it. Extrude hone, for those who don't know, is a process where you take um, a sand and you basically run it through the runners and it smooths out the runners and the intake manifold so the air flows better through it and opens them up a little bit too. So it makes the cross section bigger too. My car was one of the guinea pigs that they used to try different uh, intake manifolds on because we didn't have a a Cobra test car back back then. You couldn't you couldn't lease them a Cobra um, management lease a Cobra, and we couldn't get one on engineering um, budget either. So um, this car actually I had arranged to, to buy it through the company. So I had I had I had this car, so we used it because it was there. And uh, so we developed the, the fix. Then after that, when we um, started talking about the bullet, uh, we started using it for, um, you know, what are the kind of things that we would do? To be honest with you, I'm not, I never particularly liked uh, the, the 1999 quarter panels, you know, up on the roof, the, the roof uh, panels of the C-pillar panels. And uh, so I wanted to go back to the 1994 version which I thought were a little bit more classic for Mustang. And also uh, we talked about things like uh, uh, like uh, aluminum gas filler lids and things like that and other things that we could do that would sort of bring back more of a classic era, even though it's, you know, on a modern car. And uh, blacking out the headlamps was another one. And uh, I also wanted to, to paint the grill in on the uh, bumper, which in the end we weren't able to do. But um, there's a number of things we tried. And so we, you know, we used the car in the design center 
to sort of try different ideas to see if we were starting to get close to what a bullet would be, even though we, you know, it was green, but it was the wrong color green. You know, God meant um, the bullet to be, uh, uh, you know, dark Highland green and not, not electric current green, but, you know, frankly, sometimes you just have to make do. Sure. And uh, so we also had some other color cars that we ended up using later on, but we used it for, for that. Also, um, I had been, I'm, I'm a tinkerer and I was a mechanic for many years before I was an engineer. So every weekend about that time, I was, I would inevitably be in the car and changing something, you know, taking, lowering it a little bit and doing some different things to it, the exhaust systems and stuff like that. So I was, I had been, I was playing with the car pretty much every weekend so everybody kind of liked the exhaust noise that I was getting out of the car. So we realized that exhaust noise was really important, you know, and the, because of the movie, you know, the exhaust noise is very pronounced. So, you know, we, we did a lot of experimentation with that, but in the end, we um, actually just sound mapped the movie. The work I did on my car was not actually used in the, the bullet as it turned out, just the idea of it was. Then we, um, Used that car also to develop some parts for the uh, body parts for the Terminator. And then ultimately, it was one of the vehicles we used to learn how to fit the shaker hood scoop on the uh, Cobra engine. Because it was, you know, it had all that there already. So working with uh, the team, they they fitted a, um, a shaker on it. At first, it was a pretty crude execution on the hood. And then now it's got uh, just a production a Mach 1 hood on it, but it's still got, it's got a shaker, but it's uh, not the original shaker like I had before. It was, it's the, uh, it's the actual production one because the, the quality of the original shakers was not very good, to be honest with you. So the car had a lot of development history. Also, because it had been used in the design center, I had put things like the, uh, the Mustang pace car seats. I don't know if you remember from, from 79. Which was the program I was I did for that was the first program I was involved in at Ford, and uh, so I I had pace car seats for car seats, and I got them covered by a design center guy. Uh, did on weekends who matched the interior, and they did uh, you know um, uh, leather door trim panel and special. Uh, we took the interior pieces and we painted them all body color to see what that would look like for the bullet. So there was a, a number of other things we did to it. Oh, yeah, and the the, uh, the pedal covers. We use it to look at pedal covers, too. I was also a big believer that the uh, brake pedal was in slightly the wrong position for, for heel and towing, so we used it for that as well. So we bent the brake, brake pedal around a, a bit on that car, too. So we used it for quite a, quite a few things, um, non-destructive testing, <laughs> I'll call it, because I was still driving it every day. It couldn't be couldn't be too much ripped up because I needed to get home that night. <laughs> um, but uh, ultimately, though, I think if I remember correctly, you did race it a little bit, didn't you? Yeah, I do. I've been doing track days for a long time. So and so I yeah, I was um, actively going and running the local SCCA tracks around uh, Michigan with it. Well, I, I would say it was kind of interesting when we had the car on display. Of course, we had a sign on there to tell people what they're looking at. And it would be interesting every once in a while you see a person look at the car and look at the car and look at the car and just keep looking at the car. It's like they don't know what they're seeing. 
So yeah, because it's a little bit of everything. Oh, that would be it. And I sit yeah. there, and so uh, I, I remember one particular guy, he goes, you know, I don't know if I really like this car. I just, I, I just don't know. I said, I just don't know what it is. And I said, well, if it's good enough for the chief engineer, it should be good enough for everybody. And just like that, as a, kind of as a joke, and he just started laughing. He says, well, what do you mean by that? And, I, and then I said, well, read the sign. Here's here's all the information about it. So it's sometimes it's just funny how some people just get so focused that they're out of focus. You know, they don't see what they're seeing because this isn't right. This just isn't, what, what is this type of thing? Yeah. But uh, a lot of people really appreciated seeing the car, especially when they got to understand how that car was involved with, like you said, the bullet Mach 1, things of that nature. That They, they became where I, I know the car was very much appreciated. So... Well, the the other thing I did was the um, the car as it came out in '99 for the Cobra wasn't the way we approved it in the design center. Um, the rear spoiler was moved significantly forward on the deck lid, mm -hmm. and so I moved it back to its original position, um, and that actually helped uh, downforce and stability of the vehicle, as well as it makes it makes the car look a heck of a lot better. So anybody out here, if you have a 99 Cobra and you've got or Cobra or GT and you've got that, the uh, wing spoiler before there was a separate wing, but it's sort of mounted right on the deck lid there. It was like a triangular shape. Uh, if you have one of those things, you can move that spoiler back about an inch. And that was the original position um, on the car. And uh, also black, I blacked out the, the grill opening and the grill bars underneath, all of which were on the show car and we all thought they were going to go into production but somehow i'm not even sure who took them out to be honest with you but they they didn't make it on the final production vehicle i'm just sitting here still listening to the story i enjoy listening to it every time well after after the sn95 yeah, i still have that car it's sitting in fact i'm sitting right over top of it right now well i kind of figured you still i figure yeah, i figured you still did and in fact I, in a few minutes i'll ask you a question about your mustangs but uh where did where did you move on from there after you after mo moving from that i know you started working on the fifth gen uh can you tell us a little bit about your work and effort in that area well the the s197 i actually created that one from nothing that was a all-new platform. It was the first all-new platform ever for Mustang. And the first one that was going to be focused on Mustang. And so that was a huge responsibility. And that actually was a big part of the reason. That was the driving factor why we did the Bullet and the, and the Mach 1 in some sense, because we needed to replace the S197 platform. It wasn't going to be capable of the next, the coming year safety requirements. So we knew we had to get a different vehicle structure. So, uh, you know, most of my time, frankly, was focused on the S197 while we were doing the um, the Bullet and the Mach 1, because that's, that's really was the most important thing we had going, because that would be next, you know, the next 10 years of business, if you will. So with that one, you know, we took all of this information we had from the the buyers and, and the like, and we really thought through, okay, we're we're making the entire vehicle line now, how would we how would we do this differently to really leverage what this is and to improve customer satisfaction? Because you know, S one ninety, the SN ninety five, excuse me, SN ninety five customer satisfaction was not very good, to be honest with you. And partially that was because of um, the difficulty of building a vehicle in the in the plant where we were building it in the Old Rouge plant, but also the design itself was not a very 
well thought through design from an assembly perspective. Uh, There's a lot of areas for adjustment. And when in assembly, when you're making a, you know one car a minute down the line, um, well, adjustment actually is a source of quality issues or fit issues. And so you actually want to take all that adjustment out of the vehicles and, and make it so it's what we would call a no adjust build. And, and, and to do that, you have to have a very good dimensional control strategy. I won't go into the details because it's pretty complicated. So we, we went through the, the process because we wanted to really have a world-class car because the plan was to sell the S197 in Europe. And the vehicle did have an independent rear suspension until, in fact, it wasn't taken off till after I left the program. We were developing that suspension with uh, Australia and it went into production in, on the Australian Falcon. And uh, so it did. It, the, the suspension did make it to production, but just not in the U.S., but anyway, so I spent a lot of time on the S197. I was the one who really uh, put the design brief together for the designers. I was the one working with the designers. So the, the vehicle, as you see it, and as you look at the powertrain lineup and the suspension, all the, not just the specs, but the uh, the functional image of what we we're trying to achieve, with the exception of the changes we had to make to go to the solid axle rather than the independent rear. All those things I was responsible for, and I signed off, and I frankly drove through the system. So um, there was a lot of sweat equity in the S197 for me. And I was very happy when um, they announced Hal was taking over from me, um, because I knew he would execute it in in a good way. So Hal Titang did a good job getting that into production. I'm going to ask you a question I asked Joel. When you obviously you've been to car shows, you've been on the track. You've seen you've seen cars all over, from you know the autoramas to just day, everyday street driving. When you see one of the cars that you've got your fingerprints on, does it does it resonate to you? Do you realize what you've done? How how you how you've <laughs> shaped the, the Mustang world? Does it kind of hit you? Um, it's like a baby. I see it and I know it's mine. You know, it's something I did. It wouldn't be there if it wasn't for me. When I see S197s and I see uh, uh, SN95, particularly the the uh, new edge design, um, those are vehicles I had a lot of influence over. I can understand that because there should be a source of pride for the work well done, and and so uh, I, I, I'm, I, that's why I wanted to ask you because it should it should resonate and it does. It sounds like. It, it it really does. But but I have to say, Steve, you know, and you, if you ask a lot of four people, I think they'll give you a similar answer. You might ask, well, which one is your favorite? And the answer is, it's the one that hasn't come out yet. Oh, uh, you're starting to sound like Carol Shelby. Yeah, that's <laughs> but it's, it's really true. It's exactly. Really true. No, no. And I hear you. I can understand yeah, that. And um, so when when Dave uh, Barisak took over Mustang, I was really happy. You know, with the with the S550, I was really involved with that design process and, and, and involved with the program, trying to help the program every bit I could, because um, I could give them some air cover, which was a good thing. And uh, it just, that was just as satisfying, Steve, because they were literally following the blueprint that we had laid out. And that it's kind of like you're a kid that, that ends up going to your same alma mater. You're just sort of proud that that happened. I can understand that. So I feel so I feel the same way in a lot of ways about the S550. Well, I know the Mustang enthusiasts are all happy that you did. 
because you know as you see more and more people are getting into these cars and it's just well i i don't need to tell you this these cars are all over the road these days in our area i kind of tell you we we in charlotte we only have 10 mustang clubs so there must you be have 10 mustang clubs in charlotte we have 10 mustang clubs in oh, charlotte I didn't know that. yeah that's fantastic well it is it is fantastic uh, some of these clubs get along great. Unfortunately, some kind of uh, they don't do as well. <laughs> hey, Mustang is about self-expression, yep, self uh, determination, and freedom. Yep. So you're gonna rub, have a, a few uh, rough edges there, but that's part of the fun. I sure. mean, the greatest thing about Mustang is the community. It is. And, it really and, is. And just like every family has got some dysfunctional member, you know, sibling. So does the Mustang community, and we love them. That is true. We do love all Mustangs. That's that's the that's a big difference compared to other car manufacturers that uh, that are out there. I mean, there are some clubs that hate other clubs because of the year of that car they have and yeah. things of that nature. And I and I'm not going to get into that area. That's that's just yeah. it's just you just shake your head at it. Well, so. I mean, we just mentioned John Clore, so I mean, so he's the he's the, he's the king of I the know. unloved Mustang too. I knew you were but, going. But to, but but to be honest with you, there would not be a Mustang if Mustang Two wasn't there. Yeah. So we needed that uh, deviant child, um, <laughs> for lack of a better term, to, because that kept the vehicle alive. And to the same extent, we need the Maquis to take us into the future. Correct. Maybe maybe a lot of us aren't keen on the Maquis. It's a really good car. I frankly, I'm I'm driving one now for my day to day driving. It's a it's a really nice car, but it's not, in my opinion, it's not a Mustang, but it's a nice car. And and I think Jim Farley is not wrong that in the end, electric electric powertrains are going to be the future. And I agree with I agree with that, particularly after living with one. One of the things about Mustang is it's it's a it's a by definition a selfish car, right? It's really just two people with two plus two. If you don't like somebody, you put them in the back seat. Or if it's one of these things where people squeeze in there and it's maybe a uh, a test of their their ability to to, to to delve over on themselves. But you know, as a practical matter, must the maki you can get four people in easily, and the younger generation I don't think has got the same car ethos that the older generations had exactly. But the brand message of self-determination, self-expression, freedom still resonates. And I'm hoping Maki will will pick up that and communicate it to the to that uh, generation of people. And the, and I'm not talking about the people that are buying the car now. I'm talking about people that are in say middle school now. Gotcha. Let me ask this as we start to need to wind down because we're uh, running out of time a little bit. We're getting close to our time. Uh, one thing we like to ask all of our guests is, um, and I'm, I'm worried this might be a very long list, but uh, how many Mustangs do you own? Right now, I just have two. Ah, then I, I bet I know the two. One is the 2015 R. Yep, I have a 2015 R and the Kermit. And I, one thing I wanted, I, and I brought that up specifically because I know. Ford has always been promoted, and, and and understandably and correctly, is you drive your car. And uh, there are very few of the 2015 R's, and you have driven that from Michigan to the museum. And I was yep. I was totally surprised when you, when you drove up with that. I'm going, 
I knew you had the car. I thought you drove it here. And you're like, hey, what's it for? You drive the car. Of course, a lot of people with those uh, low-numbered 2015 Rs are just kind of, you know, they're in the garage. Uh, some of them don't even want to take them to the track, unfortunately, and that's what they're for. So it's, yeah. it's you are certainly are adhering to the, the phrase, you own it, drive it, enjoy it. So uh, that's very Yeah, that's cool. the point of the car. Yeah, that's what yeah, I agree. I, yeah. So, yeah, I've got a lot of track miles on this car, and I have driven it down there. I think, uh, was it more than once? Might be more than once. I think I've it was, I, I want to say, I've seen it, I know at least once, but maybe been twice. I know you've been very generous with your time and come down here a number of times. So it may have been twice. So but, it might uh, be, I'm, right now, that's the inside track as to how I'm going to get down there in um, April. Well, though, it's, we'll, it's to drive that. <laughs> we'll, we'll see what you come with. Um, is there a bit of Mustang that you had that got away that you wish you had back? Well, uh, yes. I, and I just because it, it's um, for sentimental reasons, I had a um, an SVO um, Mustang. It was a '85 model, and I uh, competed in autocross with it, and I did pretty well with that car, and I really liked it. But I got transferred to Japan, and I just couldn't figure out how to set to 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 store it. So I sold it, thinking I would get another one. But when I came back, we had kids at that point. And I just, you know, I didn't follow up. And so I never, it never happened. Um, but I wouldn't, I would like to have had one of those again. And I had a 67 also that I had as a kit car, you know, as a car that was sort of a, I was building it up. I wish I had been able to finish that project. But in the end, when uh, I was, I had to move out of my house in Ann Arbor and move here to Gross Point where I am now. The uh, uh, when we did that, I had to sell it. Just there was no room to keep it. Unfortunately, you know, we've all had one that got away, not say got away, but one we wish we had back. So, you know, maybe, maybe in the future that may, you may, it may come around. You never know. But uh, with that, you never know. You never know. know. No, sometimes that's some of the neat stories you will hear. Now, all of a sudden, this car came back to a family or something, or a dad's car was found or something of that nature. So, but uh, I, I wanted to thank you, Art. I really appreciate your time. And I also appreciate all the effort you've done for the museum. Folks, he has spent time helping us with things. He has informed us of things. He has sent us things that we have distributed out to members. He's been a big help for us. And uh, in, in, in that regard, but also connecting to people or networking to people. So uh, I was very pleased when the members of the museum, because I have nothing to do with it. I have no, I have no say in it at all. Uh, elected Art to the Hall of Fame at the museum. Wow. And so uh, I was very pleased, but I'm glad that they can appreciate the work and the things and the things that you've done for the hobby. And, but also they may not know how much you've done for the museum. So thank you very much. Well, you know, it's a huge honor to have been recognized that way. Um, you know, I will never think I deserve it. I don't think I'm pretty sure I didn't vote for myself. Um, um, just because there's so many great members of the community that I always think that there's other people who have done more than me and are more deserving than I am. But uh, I really deeply appreciate that. Um, the um, getting that. And um, but I I also want to say that, you know, it's great to, to love all kinds of cars, not just Mustangs. So I've I've got other cars, too, <laughs> that are fun to play with. Uh, well, and, um, 
so it's a good it's a good thing to 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 um to enjoy the life the the, uh, the lifestyle of high performance cars that are interesting Sure. Well, and I don't know if you ever listening heard heard that he being being that he did not vote for himself. He is a member of the museum also, so I should mention that. And by the way, no, you did not vote for yourself. I do see the votes. So anyway, <laughs> I appreciate it again, Art. Thank you so much. I look forward to seeing you probably in about well, about next month, about about a month from now. And so yeah, about uh, a month. Yep, Just a, a month and a couple of days. Yep. yep. So we'll we'll look forward to seeing you then. So, but again, thank you so much for everything you've done and sharing some time with us for the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much, Stephen. We really appreciate the work you've done. I, you know, I, I I was inherited the old uh, museum organization team, and that was a a mess. And it's so great that that finally uh, you were able to make it happen. And uh, you have unending respect from from me for doing that. And that was, that's super hard to do. And for all you who are listening, just that the task of putting together a museum and keeping it open is incredibly difficult. So um, when you, when you go in and you see Steve, you really need to go out of your way and thank him for doing it because it's been a labor of love, I'm sure for him. Because I'm, I'm guaranteed he's not making lots of money off of it. <laughs> it is a labor of love. I enjoy it, but I also enjoy the people, uh, and, yeah, and me too. You, that's the big part of this. Uh, because that's the best they, part of it. It really is. It really is. And just today, we had a guy come in from Oakland, California. He's doing the track attack. He he was just so excited that he he bought the GT500. He got to do the track attack. He found out it was in Charlotte. What made his day was, oh, it's next to the museum. Oh, my God, I finally get to go see the museum. He spent an hour and a half in there, and he kept thanking us and thanking us and thanking us. And you're just sitting there going, you know, this is what you do it for. This is why we do it. I mean, it's just because the the car, the people, the culture, it's just incredible. And the team, as you, you're part of that, you know, Team Mustang and others who built this. We hope you've enjoyed listening to another episode of the Mustang Owners Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss any episodes. For more information on the museum, please go to mustangownersmuseum.com and you'll find additional information on upcoming events.